Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. Well, how about that for a Friday evening? Not bad, is it, outside? Well, if you're taking us with you for a walk, I much appreciate it. If you're listening to us on podcast, well, then you know you can get it on Spotify and from uh, generally wherever you get your uh, podcasts on your apps. We've got a cracking show coming up this evening. We're going to be talking to a Gaelic game changer from Offaly. Loads in this one. Uh, Chloe Farrell's been out and about and she's going to be talking uh, about canoeing and kayaking. Loads to learn there. And we're going to be looking at the issue of breastfeeding in Ireland. We have one of the lowest rates in the world. Why is that? And what are we missing out on? This is Health and Fitness with David Hollywood on Midlands 103. You're very welcome to the programme. We're going to get straight into it. I'm very glad to say that Jack Tierney joins me in studio. Jack, how are you keeping? Good, David. Thanks for having me in. Good. Uh, your book is called Gaelic Game Changer, A Modern Approach to a Traditional Sport. And I think already that's like the worm in the ear of so many listeners who'd be like, OK, there's a lot in this that I'm already by default on spec interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the thing I'd be interested in asking first is how the book came about. What made you want to make it? Yeah, so it's written in um, collaboration with Fergus Connolly, who would be a pretty high profile coach, um, was involved with Jim Gavin. Um, right at the start of his reign and then went across to the States. He's worked in Liverpool, San Francisco 49ers. But I met him in University of Michigan um, where I was on a, a semester abroad during my undergrad. Sure. Studied uh, health and performance science in UCD and went across and I'll be honest, I never heard of him before, even okay. though he is quite high profile. And someone knew I was Irish, said there's an Irish guy involved with a football team. So just reached out and that's when I first met him. Um, so... Kind of kept in touch then across a few years. You know, I would send him an email every so often. And then were you taken with kind of his knowledge and his reading of of, of uh, high level sport and this kind of stuff? Um, to be honest, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go in sport myself. I was just, just in my second year yeah. and seeing what direction. And I remember coming out with a meeting thinking, God, it's pretty intense to try and get to. <laughs> That's the, really the message you wanted to bring, because I think to get involved in high level pro sport, it, it is no joke. There's very... Like you think about it, to become a professional sports player, yeah. there could be, you know, there's 10 players or 11 players on a soccer team or there's 15 players on a GA team, there's one coach. Yeah. So the the stakes are quite high um, to get there. And that's kind of what I left with thinking, if you want to go down this road, it's it's going to be pretty competitive. That's good. You got a, a sense of the scale of what it would take to be somebody who could teach those who are aspiring to be at the highest level. Yeah, I think... He, um, I suppose over the next few years, kind of developing my own philosophy and coming around to not being the person who thinks they have all the knowledge and I'm just there to tell the players what to do. You're really trying to facilitate an environment for them to learn and and figure it out in their own way, using their own skills and talents. So and I think that's what kind of we touched on here and we'll probably get into. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, that's the spirit of the book, I suppose, is what grabbed me is that it's um, like you say, it's not telling these players what to do in a sense it's like you say providing the environment and that can apply to anyone listening this evening that is coaching the under 15s who's 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 developing young players so many people volunteer at Gaelic games and beyond Gaelic games as well and um, that's 
I find something that comes out in this book. It's it's been a really enjoyable read. Um, where can people get it first and foremost if if they're taken by this conversation this evening? Well, it's, it's uh, available on Amazon. Um, so you buy it through the UK website. Um, but if any of the social media is just Gaelic Game Changer, we'll find it and you'll get links through or GaelicGameChanger.ie. Okay, so tell me this through. then. Um, you know, this is a sports mad region. It's a sports mad mm-hmm. country. You've obviously gone on to interact with sports at a very high level in in a very macro sense and focusing on micro details. But what does sport actually like mean to you personally, Jack? Uh, funnily enough, I'm more interested in sport from, I suppose, the coaching perspective rather than as an athlete myself. I think a lot of people go the athlete route. Sure. Um, for me, you know, involved in GA at a young age. And then I kind of, when I went to college, I stopped playing really and just went up to Dublin and really got into coaching. Then in small steps there, trying to figure out, is it SNC I wanted to get into? Or once I did, I did a master's in Limerick and my master's thesis was on skill acquisition. And that kind of opened up like how you learn skills, um, particularly within athletics. And that kind of opened up a whole other area. Was that a big moment kind of from your own perspective? Uh, I think it was a, a real realization that my, my thesis was to examine how well coaches who were coaching in athletics in Ireland knew the principles of skill acquisition. Mm. So there's always this gap between the academic research and then what coaches can actually apply. Yeah. And I think that's a gap that really has to be managed. And really, we just found that there was very low awareness um, that's n- no impact on the coaches. Um, it's just, I think it's uh, more on the academic side to try and translate that. To communicate it better. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. coaches, by definition, either they're volunteering or they're working their socks off because they really care and they want to make this work. But uh, there's a gap there between what's best practice as per what, say, scientific and mm-hmm. academic research has provided and what's happening on the training field in our communities. Oh, for sure. And when you get onto the training field or you get on the track, like, real life situations and real life um, things impact your practice. So you could read a paper and it could lay out these are the best ways to set up a training session. But uh, as one, I was talking with one coach and there's one particular thing in the book which says maybe you should do focus on the pitch first rather than the gym if you're trying to do them in the same session, Um, just being very game focused. But sometimes if it's November in Offaly, in faithful fields or wherever you're training, that's really not an option to have guys go out and get wet and cold and then try and get them in the gym after. So, you know, real life does play into it and you just got to do the best you can. But I think the awareness of the principles doesn't doesn't uh, hurt. It can inform the correct decision, but you base it on what's reality and what's in front of you. You're listening to uh, Health and Fitness uh, with David Hollywood. I'm in conversation with Jack Tierney, uh, who is the author of Gaelic Game Changer, a modern approach to a traditional sport. And the traditional sport we're talking about, GAA, Gaelic Games, Gaelic Football and Hurling. Um, You've studied sports uh, beyond GAA and uh, you've been abroad in that respect. What do you think GAA means to Irish society? Uh, I don't think I have any particularly unique takes on it I think, like the setup of GA the the parochial nature playing for where you're from is is hugely unique and I think that's very evident when you when you start to look outside of GA and you look at any other sports or Gaelic games and just that we're quite um, quite cognizant to, to use Gaelic games throughout it to mm-hmm. I worked in ladies football and they're not in underneath the same umbrella and that's that's a political situation I don't even not really going to go into, but it's sure. just to be to be sure that the camogie it's it's pl- applicable to all 
sports and all the codes. Um, but I think, you know, when you're sitting down to write something like this and Fergus is, is away in the States now and we were going back and forth a lot, you do get really romantic about what it can, what it represents and what it can be. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think that does, that's a, that's a common sensation when mm-hmm. people emigrate, for instance. Yeah. And it's why the, the, the word of the GAA has spread so well in, in those emigration hotspots. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you go away and you show anyone any Gaelic games, they, people generally usually have a, they're really interested immediately and they can see the athleticism and, and see the level of skill that's on display versus another sport. Um, when I was just in the States, I was watching some of the Six Nations and there was, you know, people around me who were like, you don't really get it, you know, okay, rugby. Yeah. It's, it's harder, just there's something about Gaelic games that really seems to capture um, people's imagination when they see it just for the first time. I think that's great to kind of um, re-engage with a sport through the eyes of someone else. It, it reminds you of what is pretty cool about it and what is great about it. Uh, what about the things that give you pause for thought or concern considering the work that you've been doing over the years? Um, I, I think the biggest thing for me is probably the balance. There's there's a tricky age when players, particularly they're 16 to 22, maybe in that age, especially when they get to 18, players who are performing at a high level can be involved in multiple county teams. There might even still be dual sport players at that stage. They go to college, they'd be involved in their college competitions. And as soon as they end, they might even be in. I know there's some rules around being involved between a, a senior and a and an under twenties grade. But sure, we see it with um, Charlie Mitchell uh, with the Offaly Hurlers, absolutely. for instance. He's got um, uh, the the provincial final on Wednesday with the under twenties, and uh, potentially and and a Joe McDonough Cup final mm-hmm. then at the weekend, uh, which is really fascinating. Sorry, I cu- I could have crossed you there, but that's that's certainly a zone that you would have concern about. Is is how kids. Um, adolescents and, and young men and women uh, are being managed and ha- uh, dealt with ages 16 to 22. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one because I think it's the, the double-edged sword that comes with the nature of the sport, that it's it, everyone trying to get their their piece and, and the players are obviously valuable to, to each team and each mm. coach can, there's no kind of overall governing body or overall um, authority trying to manage that load as well as you see in other sports. Okay. Um, and I mean, look, the level that they're playing, everyone recognizes, especially at an intercounty level, that um, players are pl- training and at a semi or near professional grade. So if you compared it to another sport, I think that would be scrutinized a little more um, and managed. But it's not even, look, it's not even intercounty. I have cousins who are involved in multiple different sports, and when the sports clash and the, the seasons change and you're playing multiple things at one time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where it goes or where it ends, but um, I think it's definitely something to keep talking about and keep engaging with. Yeah, and we're going to keep talking about this. Uh, when we come back, uh, we are going to delve into some of the details in this book. If there's any aspiring uh, coaches or anyone who's taking those uh, younger age grade players on a regular basis, there might be some great value in this chat with you. If you've got anything to contribute to our chat, 083 30 10 103 with your thoughts and perspective uh, on health and fitness. As I said, when we return, Jack Tierney is going to be talking us through some of the laws and principles that we uh, could and should maybe uh, apply to how we handle sport. And later on this evening, uh, we're going to be looking at the issue of breastfeeding in Ireland. Why is it the take up is so low and in our latest trip to a Midlands club we're going to be getting wet Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy
Experiencing hearing difficulties? Book your free hearing test at one of our clinics in Kinnegad, Mullingar or Tullamore and get impartial advice on hearing aids, ear protection, tinnitus health and more. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Welcome back to the programme. We're talking about Gaelic Game Changer, a modern approach to a traditional sport with its author Jack Tierney in studio. Uh, Jack, who's from Burr, is about to talk us through, uh, hopefully, what laws and principles mean in, in at the top of the table of contents before we hit the first chapter. Laws, principles and winning. We're going to check winning at the door for this particular chat um, as, you know, that's that's not the um, big focus of our chat this evening. Uh, but laws and principles, give us a def- definition there of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, so I'll just have to start out. I'm from Clarine, actually, and that's a very important distinction. Gosh, no, I, do you know what? I even said to myself before <laughs> I said that, make sure you say Clarine and then something in the brain. It's a Friday evening. I'm going to give. Absolutely. Sorry, Clarine. No, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, the book kind of starts quite broad and quite, I suppose, pop, not pop side, but really is trying to get coaches to think about their own beliefs and how they see the game, which is probably something that doesn't get challenged a whole lot, especially yeah because we're involved a lot of people start as players and go all the way through and then become coaches you kind of ingrain your way of thinking so the laws really are are adapted from Fergus's work Um, the laws being kind of absolutes that don't change and we lay out some in the book and I think the thing to take from it is the book is like I like to think of it it serves as you know it's very hard to start with a blank page and edit and get your thoughts down so if someone wants to pick up the book if they don't believe in some of the laws we've written, that's that's super. At least it gives you the, I suppose, the format to read something and think, oh, I actually believe this instead. But it gives you a structure to jump off type Dude. of thing. G- give us a yeah. law then. What is a law in, in, in this book? So uh, the law, I suppose, there's a, the law of exposure is one that we talk about. And that's just teams who are constantly exposed to the, the highest level of competition will invariably get better. Um, and I think the example we, we use is the Kilkenny hurlers, um, probably maybe five to ten years ago and and Cody's real reign when they used to speak about the in-house games that Mm. they played being the most intense games that they ever ever encountered and and that probably is what a real big factor to their success now team sport you can't nail it down to anything but that would be one thing that that we could point to the law of exposure and and, and that's testing yourself regularly to Mm -hmm. to improve absolutely and just trying to play the hardest teams I mean there was there's that story of, of the Offaly team, the 80s, who kept on going out to Kerry to, and they kept on getting bet well. But eventually when they came up against them in the All-Ireland in 82, they eventually did win them. Even having been bet so much, they just got that exposure. And, and I think that's one thing that that teams can take away, you know, constant exposure, yeah. Okay, so laws are non-negotiables. Um, mm-hmm. Principles are like um, guiding points within the structure? Yeah, that's exactly the way I'd say it. They... I think the term in, in academia to use heuristic. So it's you'll encounter a situation you encounter repeatedly and you have a kind of a mental model on how to deal with that situation. Mm. Now, a principle gives you, so you don't have to constantly resolve it every time, but a principle doesn't dictate exactly how you do it. A principle just guides the way and, and the way it really comes up is we have, say, a principle of play for attacking play, for example, okay, um, or a principle of play for transitioning the ball from defense to attack and the principle we use in the book is ball speed so that's kind of the overarching intent you want to try and move the ball as fast as you can when you've just turned it over and you're moving into attack now how do players achieve that then is really up to them but if everybody on the team understands that 
we're in a transition moment yeah. and our principle is ball speed. Yeah. Everyone's working off the same hymn sheet or the same page to understand, okay, we're trying to move the ball fast. It could be hand passes. You might have to go backwards to get around the op- opposition or it's just kick passing or it's running. The players will solve that question in the moment on the field using their skills and, and their talents. But you've set, the, the, I suppose, the scaffolding up to kind of get the team playing as one. You're, there's like a, a universal language in the team then mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately gives them the, like you say, the framework uh, to be able to more instinctively make their decisions instead of trying to pick out a player or, or something like that. They know that someone's going to be moving at a certain speed in proximity to them or whatever. And uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting, and I don't want to get too thick into the reads on this, but mm-hmm. you mentioned ball speed. Mm-hmm. And um, I think something was equated in the book to like how certain teams can appear really fast or really strong or really fit when in actual fact they, they might be moving less, but the ball is moving quicker. Yeah. And, and it's just... Um, it's one of those things that uh, kind of highlighted what really happens in a game mm-hmm. uh, versus what I see on television or what I see if I go to uh, O'More Park or T uh, Cusick Park or O'Connor Park. Um, is is that there's there's a big difference uh, between kind of what the informed perspective is seeing and and working on, be it the team on the pitch or or the, the people in the dugout. And and the punter, and that's something you touch on uh, in the book. What really happens in the game, and it's a, it's a chapter with a lot of flesh in it as well. I think. Yeah, I think. It, look, obviously, uh, whoever's involved with the team kind of knows what the intention is when they're going out, and they can watch the team through that lens. But I think it really comes down to just when you're watching from home and you're watching, especially through TV coverage, the t- the camera is fo- hyper focused on the ball. Yeah. That is the is the object of the game. So. It's following the ball everywhere. And really what happens in a game, that chapter is about trying to expand your view. And you can only get it by going live, really, and trying to see, OK, what's happening on the rest of the pitch? How mm. is the rest of the team and the opposition interacting around the ball? And that's really what determines. Like We try to, we're very conscious about keeping some quotes from, you know, coaches from other sports to try and bring that perspective in. And there's a great one in there by Johan Cruyff, the the Dutch um, coach and player yeah. and he says that the it's not the player on the ball who di- dictates where it goes it's the other 10 players moving and that really kind of encapsulates that idea of um, zooming out having a look at whatever everything that's going on and um, trying to kind of trying to see that whole picture is, is yeah yeah and, and he called it total football and, mm-hmm. and it makes so much sense when when uh, someone who has that vision is able to kind of flag it first and he's generations ago yeah. but what he said was just so it still holds true now which hugely yeah. I mean they're they're the principles of I think team sport is is a lot more if you go and especially expose yourself to other sports yeah and like this book is very agnostic of sport you can you could actually if you're involved in anything even outside of Gaelic games it's just very much about team sports and yeah um, the, a lot of the principles and a lot of the laws will still hold true yeah, that's 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 what I wanted to bring to the chat today. Is as it appeared to me because you were able to draw so many uh, expert perspectives uh, in quotes uh, from other sports mm-hmm. that a lot of these principles, for instance, uh, can transcend what Gaelic games is specifically, and maybe just what dealing with a group of people is. Even you know, I, I think mm-hmm. it, it could go beyond even sport in that respect. You write on managing players' health and and how 
uh, coaching decisions can inform uh, players' psychology and naturally with sport in your position you tend to be working with young people so there's mm-hmm. a almost a duty of care that's involved there. Uh, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this like how do you think players' health is being managed at the top end of the game or, or like for instance we can touch on that but would you have any concern about how players' health is being managed uh, through the, the age grades in, in Gaelic games or other sports? I think it- that's really a case by case, case, by case basis. basis yeah. I think to make a broad, I think overall, I would say per, like participation in Gaelic games is hugely positive for for the most amount of people. Um, I think maybe even not Gaelic games. I think you know some people make the the argument that maybe they're doing too much or at the top level, but I think unequivocally you'll see that people choose to to go mm-hmm. and be intercounty players, and that brings a certain level to it. Um, I think a sport at any level, like super high level sport, really isn't healthy. Like you're looking at Olympics, that <laughs> yeah. level of performance, uh, and you're looking at like international level rugby. It's or not good whatever for your it body. Is. Like no, it's not. It's not. People are people are really pushing themselves, and especially like at the Olympics, like then people are doing things that they're the only one in the world that can achieve that level. And it's it comes back to the amateur ethos of Gaelic games, like when you when everyone aspires and is inspired by the intercounty game, how does that, where's the line at, at amateur? Um, where does it become less about the performance and just more about overall health, well-being, being part of a team? Um, managing managing health has got competitive context at the highest level. So a player's health kind of uh, is directly related to how competitive you can be. So there's a there's a there's probably a good bit in the book for those who are looking at it from that angle as well. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, especially when a player is, when you have to make a decision about a player as as a coach, do they play? Do they not play? Trying to expand your view and how many games has is this player? How many teams is this player involved in? What are the long term ramifications of? they're 50-50 for this game you know at the end of the day everyone is amateurs and players are always going to want to play and and look I'm not going to tell anyone to make a decision one way or another but um, sometimes maybe the the longevity and that's one thing that we we touch on yeah that um, I think that should be a focus especially at in our game yeah I mean because uh, for so many people it's a vocation a calling and and, and something that uh, if if they kind of manage their 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 playing the game. Uh, they they would like to do it for over the long term mm-hmm. as long as possible. Ultimately, like so many of us would do. And um, we've got a couple points I would love to run through. So mm-hmm. let's briefly talk about psychology. Say if you're coaching a team, the information you give them when you give it to them, uh, the level of intensity uh, can kind of be broken down on a kind of week by week basis over plans and that type of thing. If it's just like tactical and structural and that type of thing. Uh, yeah, I think that the core idea in it and, and look we stand as we, we mentioned it, we stand on the shoulders of giants it's really just an amalgamation of a lot of different ideas from different sports but the the core principle is that you try and improve holistically as a complete player and as a complete team a little bit every week and so you go through a weekly cycle yeah and there's always a game on the weekend and that's the test it's the test of how well the players learn during that week and how well the coaches coach during that week so in kind of contrast to, I suppose, traditional periodization, as it's called, which is you do eight weeks of working on a specific thing and, and the kind of the structured, like that periodization really came from Olympic 
weightlifting and, and that's where it was developed within them sports when you're really you're competing once every four years and you have long periods to develop very specific traits. Okay. Yeah. But we're saying in a team sport environment, there's so much going on that we break it down into um, weekly cycles and you're trying to work on just incremental improvement every week. And if, if, if you're doing something with heavy intensity of a Tuesday, uh, you're going to taper that or change it as you approach the game on a Sunday or a Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. So you have you have four different elements of, of a player's development that you're that's threading throughout the week. Um, that's tactical, technical, physical and psychological. And the intensity of, I suppose, focus on each of those elements varies um, throughout the week. And what I was quite conscious of was to make sure that the book was gave some sort of a blueprint that you could at least start with and adapt. Every coach can adapt to as they see fit. Um, but at least we lay out why the blueprint's a certain way. And then if they can justify changing it, absolutely, I'd say go right ahead. But at least coming away from the book, you can come away with an actionable um, blueprint. And OK, I could implement this with my team. And this is why I'm doing these things this way. And if you and if you need to change it because every situation is different, well, then that's that's the coaches job really and for them to be able to judge huge. based on who they're dealing with where the context is and, and all that type absolutely, of thing absolutely yeah um, coaches as I said they train young people they, they deal with young people what do you think are the most important things when it comes to uh, younger people and their interaction with sport and what coaches can do particularly uh, I think self-efficacy so uh, how well uh, or how good a, a, an individual feels how their their own ability um, i think nurturing that at a young age uh, within sports it's probably a, a big factor in why people continue to play sports versus dropping out mm. uh, if you feel that you're good at it and i don't think that that needs to be determined by did you make the intercounty team or not um, that would be like a big thing i would say even in my own say experience as a I would have done other sports that I probably would have felt better at. I just didn't have the wrists for hurling, to be honest. So okay. um, other things. And, and that's, you know, you feel it when you're growing up and you're in that age and you're in secondary school or even a bit younger and you're trying to find your place. You know, being part of a team can be a huge thing and you want to feel like you can't, like you're part of it and, you know, you're good. And, and trying mate, to mate. find that for each each athlete, just noticing when they when they accomplish something and I think that's a that's a huge thing. Making it inclusive and, and mm-hmm. positive affirmation essentially is, is, is big things for developing people. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's a great note to end it on, Jack. I really appreciate it. Clarines, Jack Tierney, <laughs> uh, who is the author of Gaelic Game Changer, Modern Approach to Traditional Sports. You can get that uh, on Amazon. I'd well recommend it. And uh, Jack, I just say thanks for coming in this evening to talk to us. David, thank you very much. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Now, it seems for the longest time, certainly as far as I can remember, best practice, though the received wisdom is that breastfeeding is a positive thing and a good thing to do uh, when you have a newborn. But in this country, there's a really huge cohort of people who don't engage with it. In fact, we're 
we're lagging behind so many other countries in the world in this respect. Uh, so it does beg the question, what exactly is going on uh, on the issue of breastfeeding in Ireland? Uh, Yasmin el she's the chairperson of the Offaly branch for Quidu, uh, who uh, who are a uh, breastfeeding uh, support group. Uh, Yasmin, uh, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us this evening. Oh, lovely to be here. Um, tell me, how did it come about from your perspective to firstly interact with Quidu and, and uh, end up as the chairperson for the Offaly branch? Well... Um, I had my son in January 2022 during COVID. My husband actually had COVID at the time when I was given birth. So oh, I, myself and my son were in isolation and um, we were clo- we didn't have COVID, but we were close contacts. So everyone had to be in full PPE gear to come in to see us. Wow. And I had always thought, oh, I'd breastfeed. I thought, you know, it's perfectly, it's natural. It's easy. How hard could it be? Yeah. And anyway, I had a bit of a land because <laughs> it was very hard. Um, so at the end in hospital, they said the baby was hungry, so to give it some formula. So by the time I'd left hospital, a baby wouldn't breastfeed. Um, I was pumping, I was given formula and I continued doing that for about eight weeks. And I honestly was broken and I was looking for support mm. and there was no breastfeeding um, support group in Offaly. Um, and I had, uh, yeah, I had emailed like the head of the HSE, breastfeeding support, everybody. Anyhow, as it happened, I um, I actually almost got mastitis. So I um, I got very sick and I was put in contact with our public lactation consultant. Offaly, we have a public lact- lactation consultant. Okay. And she helped me to start to breastfeed. And then from eight weeks on, I started to exclusively breastfeed. And it was like starting all over again, except I was eight weeks more exhausted than I was <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> And yeah, I just really, really needed the support. So I was at the FESH in Mullingar and I happened to put on the, um, the lactation consultant from Mullingar Hospital and I hadn't recognised her and she hadn't recognised me because we'd never actually seen each other without full PPE on. That's gas. Yeah, so then um, she'd said, I'd said to her, we really need something. She goes, I actually know a Quiji breastfeeding support counsellor who's been trained, who's waiting for somebody else to help her set it up. Wow. So I met Carolina Vonau. She's the person who co-founded it with me. And uh, yeah, so the rest is history. We started, we're the youngest Quiju. Okay. Quiju has 26 branches in Ireland. And we're the babies of that. We started the on newbies. the 25th of August, about two weeks after myself and Carolina met. And uh, yeah, so we've been going strong and it's been fabulous. We've had great support. We have a big committee. Um, in June now, we have four people going on to train as um, Quiji breastfeeding counsellors. That's a two year training so oh from my gosh, our branch. Yeah, it's huge. And, you know, that's all volunteer run. They'll be volunteers as well. It must be an unbelievably brilliant feeling to have come in at the ground level on this and see it grow. It's unbelievably great because I know what it's like to need help. Yeah. And it's just unbelievably great that we are able to support people and whatever their breastfeeding goals is. You know, you, you don't have to do with whatever that person wants to do is what we're there to support them with. And like some things we, we can help with, some people, some things we will signpost you onto different services. But the other thing is we've made friends, like lots exactly. of friends of fantastic women, you know. And and I think for women in Ireland, particularly, there's there's this dynamic that exists where problems in relation to health can oftentimes be existed, uh, uh, gone through on their own island. Absolutely. And and sometimes the supports and the health services fall short for them. And having those support groups 
is a real vindication of what you're experiencing. Absolutely. And the thing is, you, you know, if you are in a someone like me who was, you know, it's called triple feeding when you're trying to feed, come pump and and give formula. So you've three different jobs to do while looking after a newborn. And when you say to someone else and they say, oh, I've been through the same, it's such a weight off your shoulders, you know, and you can say, like, I was just so exhausted and I felt so broken, you know, and like and when someone else says, oh, I totally know what you're, you're going through. That's an amazing thing. It's it is like you say, it's a like kind of a vindication. Because right? uh, it's just not represented in the advertisements or the, uh, the you know, the, the idealism that surrounds motherhood. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so coming up very shortly, indeed, is Quiju uh, Week. Yeah. Uh, so what's what's this for? What's it about? So Quiju Week is really just it's a week where we celebrate Quiju. Yeah. And the volunteers and all our members. So it's next week from the 15th of May and to the 21st of May. And we have like some of the Quijus around have events. Um, we're doing a lot of um, stories about um, different people in our group that have breastfed and their story on social media. It's just a nice week to celebrate us and obviously to get um, so people know, you know, about Quiju and the fact that we do support um, mums out there that are breastfeeding. I know like my granny was sending me when I was having trouble with my breastfeeding. She's sending me pictures of support groups that she'd seen in her local, you know, public health nurse yeah. or whatever. So it's great just to get the name out there. Absolutely. And uh, if anyone is looking uh, to interact with Quiju, uh, aside from the website, there's meetings that take place throughout the Midlands, awfully, as you said, as said, and are here representing Leash, Mullingarath, Lone, Ballinasloe, uh, Nace and Roscommon. There's also Zoom meetings uh, that can be done as well. Yeah, they're um, free to join and you can join them um, from anywhere. They're on our website or they're on our social media every week so you can see. The, the statistics in this country regarding breastfeeding are mind-blowing. Um, they are, aren't they? What's going on in that respect? <laughs> oh, I'll give you the breakdown. So about when in hospitals, there is about uh, 62% of babies are um, breastfed at work. Or, sorry, <laughs> breastfed at birth. Well, they should be breastfed yeah. at work to a certain degree, but <laughs> it's not happening. It's a bit happening. of work to do it. Um, but that would be compared to about 90% in Australia and 81% in the UK and America. It's a huge gap. Huge gap. But then this is the really shocking thing. So you start off at 62%. By the time they leave hospital, you drop to 37%. So that is with all the support that, that you should have at hospital, right? You're dropping to 30, it's almost half. Then by three months, that drops to 31%. This would be the lowest in Europe. And then by six months, the number drops in Ireland to 6%. The EU average would be 25%. The worldwide average is 38%. The WHO um, thinks that we're the, amongst the worst um, breastfeeding rates in the whole of the world. Well, that is an absolutely bonkers set of statistics. Um, and and uh, I don't want to end on this note because it, it's kind of troubling, but it's worth highlighting just how much work needs to be done and, and how important groups like Quiju are in relation to this work. Um, Quiju Week takes place from the 15th to uh, the 21st of May. And uh, as I said, listeners um, can... What's the what do you think is the best way for someone at home now who's facing into maybe they're expecting or uh, they're in a situation where breastfeeding is giving them a huge challenge? What would be your first piece of advice? Yeah. So if you are thinking of breastfeeding, come along to any of the groups. And um, we, you know, it's not just for um, moms that are breastfeeding. It's also we also have pregnant women who come who are thinking about breastfeeding. And then the other thing is you can 
come into the groups. You can call our breastfeeding counsellors. If you go to Quiju online, you can get a full list of all the breastfeeding counsellors and you can call them. Just have a chat. Great. Uh, Yasmin El Kershi is the chairperson of the Offaly branch of Quiju. Thank you for coming in and talking to us this evening. Thank you. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. In our latest Midlands Club profile, it's another chance for you to do something a bit different. What about canoeing and kayaking? I've never been able to nail down in my head what the difference is between them. So our health and fitness reporter, Chloe Farrell, started her chat with the owner of Lilliput Adventure Centre in Westmeath, Frankie Wright, with that very question. Kayaking and canoeing, they're quite similar in a lot of ways, but very different in other ways. And basically canoeing would have been the first form of transport on water back in many years ago. And you would have remembered the, the North American Indians would have carved out trees and, and used them as sort of dugout boats, they were called, or whatever. Over time, a few of them, when they were hunting, got a little bit lost and ended up over around the Greenland areas and, and the areas of Eskimos and so on. So they thought this was a great idea for going hunting for fish. They started using them and realised, Jesus, we're getting cold here very, very quickly because of the water splashing in on top of them. And as a result of that, they started putting pelts of animals across the open space and closing it in around themselves to keep themselves drier and warmer for a longer period of time. And as a result of that, the, the open canoe developed into what we call now a closed cockpit kayak or a closed cockpit canoe. So the difference in the two of them essentially is that one of them, you're actually sitting inside it and your your legs are enclosed <coughs> and the other one, it's just a big open space that you that you paddle off. Just from people who are taking part in canoeing or kayaking in Lilliput, what are the things that you hear the most back in terms of a positive feedback from people who are trying it out for the first time? Like you had such a fabulous lake here in Loch Ennell and all the places to explore from Ladies Island to Malachy's Island, which was King Malachy, the hiking of Ireland back, uh, the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. So there's so much going on here, so much lovely areas around the shorelines and stuff like that that you can explore. Very, very safe, very, very shallow lake. The only issue that we ever really have from a safety point of view would be if we have offshore winds, which would be westerly winds in our case here on this side of the shore, because I mean, obviously if they're blowing offshore, getting out is going to be easy, coming back is going to be difficult. So, but from a positive point of view, access, shallowness of the water, safety, all of our instructors being qualified and first aid, defibrillator on site. So there's many, many things, but uh, at the end of the day then, it all boils down to the, the fun and, and enjoyment that they have with, with ourselves and with the instructors or whatever. It's a, it's a good old place to be and, and as the crack is always good here so so you'll enjoy your day no matter when you come or what you're doing here That was actually my next question is does the weather have much of an impact on canoeing or kayaking so if the weather is extremely bad could you not go out or does it just make it a bit more difficult? It makes it more difficult. What I was saying to you, Chloe, is like people that often ring us up during the summer and my last thing to them is that if we have offshore winds, kayaking will be cancelled and that's it, end of story. If they're onshore 100 kilometres an hour, it doesn't make any difference to us because you're just going to get blown back into the shore. Now, having said that, for people starting off for, at, 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 uh, you know, for your first time, I'd be strongly recommending don't be going out in October, November or January and February because the experience won't be great. It's not that it won't be safe, but you're certainly going to be a lot colder and you'll go away from it thinking, oh Jesus, you know, that, that was a fairly cold old day out in Lilliput. I'd sooner, you know, maybe do something indoors the next time or 
whatever. So from that point of view, if you're starting off or learning, I'd be highly recommending doing it in the summer once and the weather is nice. You can be out in t- shorts and t-shirts, come back in, have a little picnic at the side of the lake or whatever it is that you want to do and, you know, enjoy it all that more in, in the warmer conditions. Is there a certain type of person that can do canoeing or kayaking or who would it suit? No, no. Kayak and open canoeing is, is suitable for everybody. I mean, we've we've actually taken out on numerous occasions. There's a lot of a lot of adventure centres don't. Maybe for insurance. Maybe because it can be a little bit more awkward to do it or whatever. But I mean, we've actually have wheelchair users out on it with us on the water. We've actually have blind people out. So like, we'd be very accommodating for everybody. It's a simple process. There is always this thing about you know if you can't swim, you shouldn't be canoeing. In my opinion, you have a buoyancy aid on. You're going to be perfectly safe in the water. You know, and I mean, if you want to take that to the other extreme. Are you going to say to somebody because you can't fly, you can't go on an aeroplane? Like, I mean, they're, they're two totally different sports. Certainly being able to swim is going to give you more confidence and you're going to be uh, a lot more capable of doing things, you know, when it comes to capsize drills and stuff like that. But when you have life jackets on and stuff like that, it's it's not a problem. And, you know, we, we quite often, particularly with our school tours, we quite often have maybe children who would be a little bit nervous about the water or maybe not as too good a swimmer or whatever and opt not to do it. And after 10 minutes watching the the other children in the school doing it and they see that the water is shallow, they have life jackets on, everything is good and, you know, quite often by the end of the day we can have children that had no confidence in the water, uh, you know, in swimming with a life jacket on. So no, it's, it really is open for everybody. And what different levels do you offer at Lilliput? Some of our instructors here are up to level five instructor now. So you're talking, uh, you're talking glacier melt rivers uh, in the Alps, or you know, in the likes of Norway and Sweden and stuff like that. I mean, you can develop from the lake here, doing learning all your skills, your capsize drills, your Eskimo rescues. You know how to do all the different bow rudder turns, stern rudders, and then when you have all of them pretty confidently, then we can move from here down to the Inni, which is a river we go down to a, a section in Ballymahan, which is. You know, it can get up to grade two, sometimes grade three waterways. So it's it's moving water with um, with stoppers and weirs and drops on it, um, and that becomes exciting then, really, really exciting. Now, having said that, there are lots of people that just enjoy paddling on calm water, going out, getting away from the whole lot, no no noise, no sound, no music, and just enjoy the peace and quiet. So it really is every level can be catered for. And just with it getting. For people who are becoming more advanced with it, do you find that there is many kind of health aspects that it helps improve? Health-wise, well, it's, it's a fantastic activity. I mean, you're outdoors, it's aerobic, it's upper body. And the, the, the one thing that it works that a lot of sports don't work even now, I do I do duathlons and stuff like that. So cycling and whatever are not really conducive to, to working with your core. That's sort of something you have to do separate with strength and conditioning or whatever. But kayaking by the nature of it, that you're sitting vertical, you have no back support. Some people use back support, but you still have to depend on your core to keep you upright and keep you straight. Then you're doing all your shoulder work, your upper chest work, your pecs, your lats. Everything is getting is getting exercise. And then you have the aerobic side of it as well, because particularly if you're racing and competing, it's uh, it, it can be quite tough. And, you know, so a lot of the top paddlers would do a lot of aerobic work alongside their kayak and training program. For people who aren't interested then in the more strenuous kind of paddling, is there a more relaxing route they can go that may even benefit their mind. Oh God, absolutely, uh, absolutely. In fact, I nearly suggest going that going to the extremes it would do anything but benefit your mind because some of the rivers that I've paddled on, by the time you get down, there would be a nervous wreck at the end of them. But you know, but there there is the people that come out here on a Sunday and hire kayaks up us and they'll tip out for an hour, an hour and a half around the water, get out in the quiet, the beautiful scenery, just shut down from everything that's going around, going on around you or whatever, and get out in the water on your own. I suppose 
and it wouldn't be my thing, but I often question fishermen, you know, and their chosen act, uh, recreation or whatever. But they will tell you the same. When you're out in the lake, you're just away from everything. There's a peaceness, a quietness, a calmness. And if there were nice weather is there. Now, having said that, if rain comes in or whatever, you know, if people see that as, oh God, wasn't that great as well as rain too. From a mental health aspect, water has always been, I, I know even if you're at the beach or at the seaside listening to the waves crashing, there's something very therapeutic about it or whatever. So, And I suppose to bring it the opposite again to getting away from the hustle and bustle, is it something that would work as a good family activity? Oh, God, yes. You know, there's many people do all these other activities, running and so on and so forth. But what I love about kayaking, particularly if you're out in the lake, nobody ever asks them, what time did you do it in? Or if you go out kayaking for an hour, nobody says, how far did you go? How fast were you? How's climate? Can't open Facebook now, but somebody has a watch up on the time that they're after doing in a 5K or a 10K. And it's making it very competitive. And from that respect, it's, you know, for the people who, whose times maybe are not so good, they can get, quite often get intimidated and drop out of the sport, whereas kayaking, you're just out enjoying doing it at that level. Can you just tell me a bit about how you got involved then with canoeing and kayaking to lead into having Lilliput? I suppose, if I go back, if I go back far enough, when I was 18 months old, I was taken out of a river after three hours. Uh, I'm pronounced dead, but obviously that didn't happen. I got to, I got to survive it, so I suppose it's a bit of a a bit of a wonder how I ended up in water at all. But uh, but my mum, as a result of that, she was very much into getting me. I'd say I was doing swimming lessons when I was five or six years of age, which wasn't a thing back 40 years ago. Sorry, actually 50 years ago now, but uh, that was just the way it was. And I just I just loved the water. I grew up around it or whatever. And then through sport and college, then I got into the outdoor end of it and started. Uh, you know, get, getting into outdoor activities, rock climbing and all that. Um, you know, I played, I suppose I was one of those ones, I played a bit of everything, football, hurling, rugby, everything like that. And I was no good at any of them, but I wasn't too bad at a lot of them. So I tended just to do a bit of everything and enjoy it. And, and you know, rather than focus on them one sport. So, um, you know, and then I went to college and started studying outdoor education. And Zach, my son now, and Ryan, run the, they practically run the place. I've after taking a turn back. Ryan spent a lot of time out in America uh, teaching out there in different camps out there or whatever so between the two of them you know and we, we're living on the side of the lake now so it's just it's nearly bred into them and uh, yeah, you know when you find something that you like you know and, and again as I say going back to bringing children canoeing or bringing children up a hill like it's back down to the, once you get to the end you get to the top you've done it there's no no times nobody uh, questioning your ability about how you got there how fast you got there so so I just love doing it and we we're like I mean there's not too many people that's in their job which we are in now you know when they get a day off that'll go off kayaking or go off climbing mountains or go off to the Himalayas or whatever but that's what we do on our downtime we go away and do what we're after doing in our work time so we're actually very very lucky we're blessed you know so but you know love the outdoors absolutely love it Sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Uh, that was Frankie Wright. He's the owner of Lilliput Adventure Centre in Westmeath, speaking to our health and fitness reporter, Chloe Farrell. I hope you have a very good weekend. We'll be back next week. We're off to the Midlands 103 Newsroom and then it's Joe Cooney with Country Roads. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie.